This week on The Futurist, Brett King is in the hot seat. There's one element that you will see repeatedly in human history is that we tend to not plan very well for these things. The, the, the crises have to be on us and debilitating for us to respond. But the scale of artificial intelligence and climate in respect to the changes they're going to bring on society are so large that any delay in response to this and any complacency, as you say, is going to cost lives and trillions of dollars. Technology, as as all your listeners will be aware of because they interact with it on a daily basis, emancipates you from the drudgery of tasks that one didn't want to do in the past, maybe doesn't want to do in the future and won't need to. It's a force for good in that way. Now, that doesn't mean that equality is going to disappear, but it does mean that uh, more people are going to have access to to greater resources and, and a better quality of life. Hello, welcome to the future. I'm Rob Tursick, and this week we've got something special for you. My co-host, Brett King, will be in the hot seat answering questions with his co-author on their new book, Techno-Socialism. Hey, Brett, welcome to the future. It's great to be back in the future with you, Robert. Um, <laughs> I like all living in there. the future. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know this is a this is an unusual uh, one where I get I'm on the other side of the microphone, if you like, uh, where you're asking the questions. But, That's right. Um, but um, yeah, great, great to. I'll do my uh, best have... to make it as uncomfortable as possible for you. <laughs> to get started, great. let's let's talk a little bit about your co-author. So this time uh, you've written a number of books, uh, and if, for folks who don't know, Brett's written several books, particularly the Bank series, the Future Banking series, which are superb. But this time, Brett's worked with a co-author, Dr. Richard Petty, who is a global policy advisor who's worked all over the world, including in China. We'll get into that in a moment. He's also an entrepreneur, a best-selling author, and an academic. Now, Brett, what attracted you to work with Richard Petty on this book? His hairstyle. Oh, no, no. <laughs> no, um, no, Richard and I have known each other for more than 20 years now. We work together in Hong Kong um, and uh, around the world, actually. We, we, had a bit, we had a businesses in, in China and Dubai and, and elsewhere that we, we worked on together. So we'd known each other for, for quite a while. Um, and uh, we, we'd been looking for a project to do together. Um, and this, this ended up being being something we incubated for a number of years. We talked about it and it just slowly took shape. Um, But um, I think what really sort of kicked this off is we ended up getting together in Sydney at one point. We both happened to be there and we got into a a boardroom with a whiteboard and I think spent um, four or five hours in front of a whiteboard just mapping some some ideas out and and the book was sort of born out, out of that. Now, you know, we we did have some things we talked about prior to that, but that was the kickoff. And at that point, um, you know, it was sort of the melding of the minds and we knew each other so well that it was was uh, fairly effortless, effortless um, you know, to, to put the book together after that. But yeah, we'd been looking for something to do together Great. like this. Well, we'll yeah. get into your process and we'll get into the scenarios uh, in just a second. But Val, I think it's uh, a good time for us to introduce Richard. Richard, welcome to The Futurists. It's great to have you here. Uh, This is a show where we talk to people who are thinking about and actually actively building the future. And what we're most interested in is 
How did you arrive at your vision of the future? What was your methodology for arriving at that? And what are you doing about that to implement it? Those are the questions that we like. So welcome, Richard, to the show. Thank you, Rob. Hi, Brett. You know, what I'm interested in talking to you about is, uh, is the core premise of the book. So Richard, share with me a little bit about the perspectives that you brought to techno-socialism. Well, Brett and I spent a lot of time talking about the various uh, ideas in the book and how they take form and how they might take dimension in terms of different chapters. And we arrived at the core themes because they're universal and hopefully because they're universal, they're applicable and of interest to everybody. I think Brett's uh, background is is banking and technology, uh, a whole range of things. Mm-hmm. But if I were to narrow it down, a future of tech, future of technology, uh, broadly, and banking. And my background is in uh, finance and uh, economics and accounting and business uh, and as an academic. So I think we we blended the two, hopefully fairly successfully, to produce a, a book that's of interest. Well, the book is actually a very good book. Uh, I, I told Brett it's the best book of his that I've read. So clearly your contribution made a big difference. Um, what's interesting about the book and why it's relevant to the show, this is not just a shameless plug for my buddy's book, not at all. In fact, uh, while Brett was writing the book is when we came up with the idea for the show, because the subject matter of the book is really, really relevant to what we're trying to do on the futurists. Namely, it's helping people understand what's coming next, what's likely to occur in the near future and why that's likely to occur and what to do about it now so that you can be prepared. These are, these are really two themes that are true in techno-socialism, the book. And they're also part of what we hope to build here at the Futurists. Uh, no, so you two seem to have, as part of your methodology, first you've worked together in many places in the world. And I think that's a really important thing for people to take away from the show. Um, people who are thinking about the future tend to get out and look around the world. It's a bit like that old uh, adage that I know Brett likes to quote, uh, the idea that the, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. That's a, um, a William Gibson quote, and it's a good one. It's relevant. Yeah. It's actually true. You know, um, I've seen that myself from working in Asia and Europe as much as I possibly can. I think it's important to get out there. So you do have that in common. But in addition, you're multidisciplinary. And so while Brett has a focus on finance and technology and the intersection of the two, you bring other perspectives from economics and so forth into it. And that mixture then allows you to kind of compare and contrast some perspectives. So for the folks who are listening, that right there is a key point. Uh, That is is part of the methodology of creating this book, Techno-Socialism. Brett, why don't you tell me in a nutshell, what's the theme of the book? What's the book about? Well, so if you look at the subtitle, it says the rise of techno-socialism, how um, inequality, AI, and climate change will usher in a, in a new world, right? Um, and so it's very much a philosophical conversation about hum- how humanity will adapt to these forces. Obviously, inequality is a massive problem right now and has become a much more significant problem as a result of the pandemic. Um, you know, the, the gap between the rich and the poor has grown globally. The number of people, you know, for the first time in 100 years, we've seen people slip back into poverty. This is a trend over 100 years that we'd been, um, you know, that we sort of got on top of. But on on you know, the, the other issues are clearly how humanity is going to adapt, 
to um, a world where uh, we have highly automated societies and the changing role of work and human capital in those societies, and of course, um, our response to climate change and the resources and effort that it's going to take on a, on a global basis and the cooperation it's going to need. Any one of these three things um, would be considered a crisis historically in respect to um, you know, the, the, how humanity is going to have to respond to that. So we wanted to sort of really map out what are the potential ways we're going to have to deal, or what are the, the ways humanity might respond to that and put an argument forward for what we thought was the optimal way that humanity could uh, uh, respond to those changes. But, um, you know... Okay, the, so the, one thing I noticed is uh, you just mentioned three things, three of the big drivers of your scenarios. Right. Uh, you described them, you characterized them as as crises, right? So uh, climate change, in, global inequality or income inequality, uh, and the rise of artificial intelligence. Now, I would submit to you that quite a few people are very complacent about this. Uh, they don't see it as a crisis at all. Uh, and you know, many people deny climate change, at least you know, many people in the United States seem to deny that it's even a factor. Um, inequality, although it is a great matter of great concern, Many people are not concerned about it. They're not reacting to it. We're not, certainly not taking measures to do anything to uh, to rectify that or redistribute income in any meaningful way. Um, and then with the rise of artificial intelligence, I think the mass group of people right now is fairly indifferent to it, uh, maybe even unaware of it. Uh, correct me if I got that wrong. No, I think you're broadly right, Rob. Uh, most people, I believe, would be familiar with the ideas. They'd hear about it in the, in the ether. It would be background noise. But... Yeah. Very few people are dealing with the issues directly. I, I would say climate change aside because it's been such a focus in mainstream media for a long time. But if you look at wealth and income inequality and, and AI and, and even the digital economy, these, these concepts are um, very important and prevalent uh, already in some sectors, but they're not widely distributed through the economy in a way where many people are uh, engaging with the, with the ideas on a daily basis and, and being confronted by them and what they mean. And the, the issue we have really is just how quickly the forces that are shaping the world have been accelerating. So mm -hmm. I have conversations regularly with people where they say things like, well, you know, post-industrialization, uh, post-war, uh, baby boomer, look at the time frame taken for major change there, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, these various things happen, whatever examples they cite. Uh, so we've got, you know, 30 years, 40 years looking into the future based on the past to think about uh, what might be happening. That's just not true. What's happening is the time compression, the spatial compression means that the forces that we're seeing today uh, are shaping things far more rapidly. So the changes, okay. take central bank digital currency as one example in China, talk about a trial in 2018 and it's here that they could be given. Okay, so one thing you're saying is that these three big forces in a way, they reinforce and accelerate each other. And I think that's quite true. You know, For instance, artificial intelligence, though it brings great opportunities for those who are deploying it, it also means a lot of people are going to be displaced from their jobs. And that's going to, at least in the short term, exacerbate income inequality. And we could say the same about climate change. You know, For most people, uh, sleepwalk through climate change until there's a fire in their neighborhood or until it's like super snowy and freezing cold. But then you know, the weather goes away. And, and after a time, we sort of slip back into complacency but those disruptions in the climate are also going to have an effect, I think, on inequality. And so you can start to see those big three factors influencing each other and, some, in some respects, accelerating what might become a mega crisis. 
Is that your premise? Is that how you see this? Is that why you felt it was so urgent to write this book? I, I think um, th there's one element that you will see repeatedly in human history is that we tend to not plan very well for these things. The, the, the crises have to be on us and um, debilitating for us to respond. Right. But the scale of artificial intelligence and climate in respect to the changes they're going to um, bring on society are so large that um, any delay in response to this and any complacency, as you say, is going to cost lives and trillions of dollars. And right? the best um, illustration of that is uh, the pandemic that we just had. And this correct. is, you know, many people acted like, wow, nobody could have foreseen this. No one could have possibly imagined that there would be a new kind of coronavirus that would come out of the Wuhan district from perhaps a bat. When in fact, that very <laughs> scenario had been, had been predicted, predicted dozens yeah. and dozens of times by expert scientists, just no one was listening to them. And, and um, the inequality, uh, um, you know, all of these crises produce economic uncertainty. That's the premise in, in the book. But That's right. The, the inequality issue, when we've seen the, the levels of inequality that we have today, we've seen these in the past, it has always um, been a precursor for revolution. That, mm -hmm. That's how serious the level of inequality we have today is. And you can see... Um, as we discuss in the book, that the number of protests globally and the participation in protests globally has increased significantly, more than doubled in terms of frequency and a tenfold increase in terms of participation volume of, uh, of protesters. So that gives you the indication that what's happened in the past with inequality producing revolution, we've got all of the potential ingredients for, for that happening in many countries around the world today because of inequality alone. That's even before we get into the unemployment potential of automation and the broader impact of climate. So, so given all of those trends and those scary, uh, those scary factors that are causing so much, um, let's say, disruption or uncertainty, big theme in your book, um, you propose that the solution, the antidote to all this, is a form of socialism. Now, here in the U.S., those are fighting words. You know, when we talk about socialism, socialism in the United States, it's basically a catch-all phrase for something that I don't like very much. And it's thrown around by various political figures uh, who I think aren't very well informed. Uh, how accurately are you using this term socialism? What's your definition of socialism and techno-socialism? Well, neither Brett nor I are, are socialists. We should say that up front. We're both uh, raised in capitalist economies with capitalist views and ideals. So I'm not talking uh, we, to we... a modern day Frederick Engels and Karl Marx here proposing some sort of red shirted revolution. No, it's, it's, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So, so the title is perhaps uh, interesting and maybe maybe there to help stimulate interest. But, but in specific terms, it goes to equality of kind that isn't what socialism. Uh, of the past would presage or, or advocate for, but it's a broader quality and it's a broader quality that technology brings about and technology enables. Mm -hmm. uh, technology, as is, is all your listeners will be aware of because they interact with it on a daily basis, emancipates you from the drudgery of tasks that one didn't want to do in the past, maybe doesn't want to do in the future and won't need to. Um, so it's... Uh, it's a force for good in that way. Now, that doesn't mean that income and wealth inequality is going to disappear 
but it does mean that uh, more people are going to have access to, to greater resources and, and a better quality of life. So this is what the technology is enabling. Now, the classical social, so, socialism envisioned the notion that the workers will own the means of production, right? Famously, in, and um, that's both Bakunin and Karl Marx writing uh, in the 1870s. Um, and to a certain extent in digital media, that's true. You know, in this creator economy, now everybody has a supercomputer in their pocket, a smartphone, and they are able to contribute. Uh, so one aspect of equality, Richard, is access, right? Equal access. There's a lot of ways to define equality, but historically that's always been an issue in, in most countries uh, that not everybody has equal access to opportunity. One might say that digital media does level a playing field, at least somewhat. Um, and the fact that everybody with a smartphone now can participate in the creator economy, would you point to that as a form of techno-socialism? So let me let me jump in here. Um, yes, absolutely. I think what we advocate in the book, and Richard came up with this uh, great concept, um, you know, which was that the economy should serve the citizens first and foremost. So rather than the the workers owning the means of production, that it's like the citizens should own the outcome of the economy. You know, and so if you look at alignment of how economic output works today in the systems we have today, it's geared towards a very small uh, subsection of the community at large or the citizens. Whereas, you know, if you repurpose the economy to focus on the core needs of citizens first and foremost, and you do that with technology, two things happen. You get much better at look after, uh, looking after the core needs of citizens. And over the period of time, within just a couple of decades, you can reduce the cost of government and all of those services to citizens dramatically. So it's like um, socialism, but without the cost. In fact, cheaper than the cost of the current system today. We, we demonstrate in the book, for example, on healthcare, how you can lower the cost of na the national healthcare system in the United States by 70%, 70% from the system today using, using uh, you know, uh, automation of, of that system. Great. Okay. So we're talking about two things then. One is equal access, equality of access to opportunity. And what Brett, you just spoke about is equality of outcome, uh, you know, basically divvying up the pie. We, we know that there's some prosperity there, but it's not equally distributed. So that's another way to go about doing it. In the second half of this program, what I'd love to do is get into the four different scenarios that you posit for the future and tell me how you arrived at those scenarios and then tell me why you chose techno-socialism as the most favorable outcome. Uh, so right now I'm talking to Dr. Richard Petty and my co-host, Brett King. They are the co-authors of The Rise of Techno-Socialism, one of the best books on the topic of the near future that I've read, and part of that is because it's so well informed by data. As, uh, as Brett and, and Richard just pointed out, they meticulously document every scenario, every claim that's in the book with factual information. So in the second half, after the break, we're gonna come back and talk about some of the core parts of what's inside of the prescription for the future. You're listening to The Futurists. See you in a moment. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm JP Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. 
Hey, welcome back to The Futurist. I'm Rob Tursick, and today I'm interviewing my co-host, Brett King, and his co-author, Richard Petty, Dr. Richard Petty, about their new book, Technosocialism. Now, Brett, one of the core premises in the book is scenarios, and that's also really relevant to our show. That's why you're on the show today. Um, you posit four scenarios for the future of humanity. Can you tell us about those four scenarios? So, so um, we, we come up with four scenarios. They are the Ladistan scenario, the Fayaldistan scenario, neo-feudalism and techno-socialism. And those uh, quadrants on a, um, you know, a two-by-two two, um, you know, representation of two primary axes. One is um, societies that are inclusive versus exclusionary and uh, futures that are um, optimal or planned versus futures that are chaotic. And so on the chaotic side, you have um, on the inclusive side is where we say technology creates division, so we reject technology like artificial intelligence. So that's the inclusive chaotic. Uh, on the exclusionary chaotic, you have the failed states where we just waited too long to react to uh, some of these core problems. And, you know, as a result, you have failed states. In a way, that's um, kind of the default path that we're on. If we just right. do nothing and we sort of sit back and go, yeah, AI, climate change, whatever, we're not doing yeah, a thing exactly. about it. Then we end up in failed us down. Exactly. Um, and then on the planned futures, you have exclusionary economies like the United States, where we said neo-feudalism is essentially where we're heading today, which is where the gap between rich and poor gets baked in systemically. So the stratification of um, you know, wealth in society is, is sort of baked in by market mechanisms and by the way um, you know, society responds. Um, and then the inclusionary uh, technology-based um, you know planned outcomes is where we we look at uh, you know reducing the cost of government making a technology accessible to everyone so for things like um, better health care better access to education um, better transportation systems access to food shelter you know all those sort of things that we use technology to ensure that um, the the best quality of those uh, uh, cap you know capabilities are delivered uh, across the economy Economy. Okay, so that's the that's the four quadrants. Those are the four quadrants. So for those who are listening, if we do nothing, we end up in failedistan, basically the land of failure, um, where these these big trends, these big disruptors, are going to overwhelm our systems. Um, another alternative, which is also kind of a failure, is neo feudalism, and that's where the rich do something about it. They start to build walled cities with private police and so forth, and they leave everybody else behind. So we have a scenario of massive inequality. Ladistan is a scenario of chaos where people reject technology altogether and we are unable therefore to harness it to improve life and things to begin to degrade. So from the viewpoint of this book, the only scenario that makes sense is techno-socialism. Techno-socialism relies on technology, but with planning and foresight. That's what brings it to the relevance of our listeners here. Now, I would say planned economy is a loaded term. Uh, certainly here in the United States, where we've had 50 years of neoconservatism and the idea that the government should be hands off, in particular on the technology industry, where we barely regulate anything anymore in the United States. Um, that seems like it's quite a, quite opposed to the national trend in the U.S. That may be different elsewhere. And I know that you're both Australian. Tell me a little bit about that, though. You know, how likely is it that we're going to see, um, you know, government policy or some sort of industrial policy? 
Well, when, when we talk about government policy, I think it's important to understand there's a real bifurcation on the global stage uh, among governments and, and thinking about regulation and, and policy. So some, some economies, I would suggest, are over, over-regulated mm-hmm. and continue heading in that direction. And uh, other economies are very focused and perhaps uh, regulated in a more in a more sensible way. Ultimately, this needs to lead to productivity. That's that's something we argue in the book. If it doesn't result in productivity, then it's going to uh, stymie innovation, kill the knowledge economy, uh, you know, or underrealize the potential that's there. So, government needs to work hand in hand with business. I think the policy prescriptions that uh, the government puts out need to be informed by business, but quickly, really nimbly, and it needs to be an effective compact rather than just shutting business down, which many businesses would argue uh, feels like it's so often the case. Now, where do you see that happening? Is there any place in the world where you'd point to a national government that's actually doing a good job of working hand in hand with uh, business to set intelligent policies? I think if you look at the examples of smart cities that we give in the book, and and perhaps a a good example there is uh, uh, Singapore uh, working hand-in-hand with business to create smart city developments and to look at new economy initiatives. If you look at what Singapore's done with Digital Hub and what they've done with uh, education, Mm -hmm. uh, education being such a, a key and core industry to knowledge, innovation, and creativity, which is the backbone of the future economy. Uh, now, now Singapore is not perfect, of course. There are many ways in which uh, in which Singapore might be argued to be uh, over-regulating or, or overly intrusive, but uh, to a large degree, they get it right in a lot of areas in terms of improving productivity and, and supporting industry. So I think mm-hmm. that's a fair example. It happens in the in the US, in parts of the US, but not in the US overall, and, and possibly because in the US, there are so many other distractions and so much... Uh, political uh, infighting and fractiousness that, that just doesn't help the cause. It doesn't help anyone's cause ultimately. And in the US, the, the states pursue their own policies. Yeah, correct. So it's very much a state-by-state state, uh, success, success-fail uh, scorecard in, in many industries. Mm-hmm. Um, so the states is an interesting case study for that reason. Now, uh, Singapore has often been admired by other parts of Asia, nation, other nations in Asia. Uh, it's often looked at as a model. Um, when I lived in Hong Kong, there was a very healthy rivalry uh, between Hong Kong and Singapore. But Singapore was viewed also, though, as as uh, a little bit of an exception in the sense that it's a small island country um, with uh, only six million residents. And um, and because it doesn't really control any resources of its own, it had to f- focus on certain industries where they could be competitive. And they also focus very much on diplomacy and good relationships with their neighbors because they're a small country in the middle of some very big countries. Um, now, China in general, uh, over the last 20 years, has observed the Singapore phenomenon and in some ways has tried to replicate it. First, I know there was an initiative in Singapore uh, nearly 20 years ago to actually work with the Singapore government to try to replicate some aspects of governance in, in Shanghai. Uh, and what you see in China is you know, an attempt to create, a, a, I guess, a benevolent dictatorship uh, similar to Singapore, uh, you know, where they're... they're um, it's a it's a dictatorship that decrees things that are kind of in favor of the people. We've seen recently that President Xi in China is doing some of this. You know, there's been a real crackdown on technology companies, and particularly the excessive technologies, um, and a resh- and a shifting over to um, over to more scientific industry, like you know, core science, uh, the manufacturing industries, things like chips um, and renewable energy, uh, solar panels, and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about the contrast with China between China and Singapore? 
So I, I think the one thing that's clear that China is is doing in terms of its prosperity doctrine is is looking at this problem of inequality and the potential for you know we we saw the tech giants uh, particularly um, you know start to get huge amounts of power in the economy and uh, you know recently they've sort of pulled back on that. But the interesting thing is, you know, you could probably characterize China's economy as less regulation when it came to a lot of the technology initiatives, uh, particularly, uh, for example, the the Alibaba Ant Group, um, you know, Tencent, um, you know, the, these um, businesses, just on the areas of like mobile wallet and mobile banking innovation that's happened, a lot of that occurred um, at a sort of breakneck speed without any real regulation but as soon as it, it it started to look like it could turn negative um or result in issues then then the chinese government stepped in um so the the real core thing we focus on though in the book is the fact that china as an economy is preparing its nation for the types of skill sets that are going to be needed in the 21st century and it appears they're doing a better job of that than than the us you know in the us we still hear arguments about traditional industries supporting big coal and um, you know so forth. You know was was a part of Donald Trump's campaign, um, whereas you know China last year deployed more solar in a single year than the entire solar installation base of the United States the last forty years. Um, you know, in in addition, they teach artificial intelligence at almost every element of of the education system today, um, and for every one PhD STEM graduate that graduates in the US, three graduate in China. Then you've got the $8 trillion they're spending on Belt and Road. You know, so all of these things led us to, um, you know, believe and, and, and articulate in the book that we think China is going to be a very strong economic player, uh, you know, for, for the remainder of the century. Jump in on your point of contrasting Singapore and China and, and where the differences are going to lie. So you're exactly right about Singapore. Singapore's had to adapt and innovate, and they've done that very well, and they've succeeded because of it, but they're constrained by a small population and the lack of resources. China isn't. China has massive population, huge access to resources. It's a one-party state, howsoever one might feel about that, but that collectivism leads to and has led to the greatest economic miracle we've seen where you've lifted... Uh, hundreds of millions, 600 million people out of, pro- out of poverty uh, and put them into, uh, into a, a more modern economy with, uh, with a lot more uh, quick action to come. So I'd, I'd echo what, what Brett said and just add to that by if you look at China's five-year plan and you look at China uh, 2025 made in China, 2035 standards, uh, China standards, if one looks at Belt and Road, if one looks at the uh, Greater Bay Area, initiative, these key policy initiatives, China really has a lot happening that goes to future economy and goes to uh, identifying and carving out a a successful future in, in many ways, we would think. Now, everything you just mentioned, all those initiatives, Belt and Road, Made in China 2025, these are what we would call industrial policy, where the government sets, uh, you know, industrial goals and then marshals in sort of a way, you know, leads uh, industry to achieving those goals. And China has been very explicit about this. Uh, you know, the, the, the Chinese government has set forth these goals. They publish them, they update them regularly and so forth. That's quite different from the United States' approach, which I would characterize as laissez-faire um, and in a way clueless. Uh, because, you know, if you 
if you watch our, our Congress uh, attempt yes. to do, you know, an investigation <laughs> where they interview someone like Mark Zuckerberg or, uh, or the CEOs of other technology companies, just the nature of the questions that the, you know, that the 70 year old senators are asking shows that they don't really understand the technologies that they're, they're talking about. Um, and this is a frightening scenario for some people in America and others cheer it. They say that's what makes America great. You know, the government doesn't get in the way. They, let, they, leave, us, uh, they leave it free for business to proceed. Why don't you two comment a little bit about those two? And I know I'm, I'm generalizing like mad when I make those comments, um, because what you're really advocating in the book is a more directed approach, a uh, governmental approach where um, there is some form of industrial policy. Uh, so please comment on that. Well, it has worked for the U.S. in the past. And the question is, will it work for the U.S. into the future? So laissez-faire works really well when you've got uh, a whole lot of innovation happening and a whole lot of entrepreneurs who are incentivized to produce what, what they've produced. And in many ways, the US is the leader in many industries and will remain so into the foreseeable future, uh, particularly in, in areas of technology and, and uh, social technologies and communication technologies and, and so on. One could go on and on. So the innovation is there, but will it continue? And uh, to Brett's point about the STEM PhDs, if one looks at how many doctoral uh, students you have in the US versus China, China dwarfs uh, the US in stem in areas that go to engineering, math, innovation, technology. Mm -hmm. So what sort of future does that predict? But the main, the main issue, I suppose, Rob, the main factor in all of this is coordination. In the US, there just isn't the uh, systematic coordination between government and industry that we see in China. You know, for, for, for better or worse, in terms of uh, a political lens, regardless of one how feels about it, uh, coordination works if everyone has a common and clear understanding. So I think your point's very relevant about the the uh, the gap between the generational gap that perhaps doesn't play into that in a in a very way, uh, sensible way for the US and for other economies like it. And you also need a shared framework and a shared understanding of facts. And I'd submit that that's not always the case in the US in our highly politicized uh, and highly polarized um, environment right now. And Richard, one of the things that you mentioned and in, in, in you described in the book, we formulated is uh, an acronym KIC, Knowledge, Innovation, and Creative. And these are some of the ingredients that you think are going to be necessary uh, for, for industry to respond to these initiatives, to achieve these targets. Um, tell me more about that plan. Well, we're already in a knowledge economy and we have been for, for some time. The signposts are there, as, as you discussed during your, uh, your podcast, for the future economy and what that means. And we, we'd suggest that it's knowledge, innovation and creative economy into the future that will survive. So that umbrella brings in all of the jobs, the industries, and then the jobs that will likely succeed into the future. And it's where the focus, uh, focus should be. Uh, for anyone who's who's looking at the future. In, in a way, that might be viewed as like the antidote to artificial intelligence, right? So artificial intelligence is a double-edged sword uh, in some respects, because uh, on the one hand, it offers the path to great prosperity as we can automate more parts of the economy. And clearly that's, that's, that's demonstrably true. Uh, the rewards of that, the benefits of that are not always equally distributed, but nevertheless, AI definitely brings efficiency uh, to, the the, to the production of goods. At the same time, it also destroys jobs. So this is a fact. And in your book, you cite that uh, widely cited Oxford report where they prog uh, prognosticate that some 50% of jobs might be displaced by AI. Uh, so the knowledge economy, innovation jobs, and jobs that involve creativity, these things these seem to be less likely to be automated. You know, Brett, you haven't spoken up a little bit, but why don't you respond to that a little bit, this, this uh, double-edged aspect of artificial intelligence and robotics? 
so we can see where this is trending because if you look at the largest companies today, we identify them in the book. You know, nine out of ten of the largest uh, companies in the world today are technology company. The the only one that's an exception to that is uh, Saudi Aramco. Um, but of those nine um, technology companies that are in the top ten, um, and I'm not sure Facebook might have slipped out of, of that recently, but um, if you look at the number of people they employ for the economic output those businesses produce, that has been declining over time. It is it is about one-fifth of the largest employers in the 1950s and 1960s in the United States. In terms of that ratio of employees or individuals working human capital to profitability. So um, these technology companies are massively more profitable, require a lot less people um, to accomplish that. We can, you know, we would expect that that trend would continue, that corporations would become more and more automated because, you know, humans are one of the most expensive components of labor. Take a business like Uber, for example. Um, you know, when we have autonomous vehicles, we can cut out the cost of human labor. Um, but the more a society Society we automate in that respect, the more problem we have of having to find jobs that humans can now do that have been replaced by that automation. And that's really at the heart of this question as to, you know, what do we do when we have highly um, automated societies with these corporations that the market rewards because they're extremely productive and extremely efficient at producing, um, you know, capital return, you know, what do we do with the humans? And, and that's um, a very real question that we sort of did try to tackle in the book. But it's a bigger question of sort of the role of work in society and how we value people in society if they're unable to work because society's taken that option away from them as a result of automation. Ironically, the one saving grace here may be response to climate change, which is going to require a lot of heavy lifting. Uh, so that may employ people who are otherwise displaced. Yeah. Yeah. And if I could if I could just add to what Brett said very quickly. So I, I think we would view AI and KIC as being very compatible in the sense that uh, knowledge will be the frontier that pushes AI and, and everything else. So it's essential that everything innovation needs to happen all the time, everywhere for us to progress and advance. And on the creative side, people are, are gonna want uh, to see performers and, and artists of all kinds whether it goes from food to visual art to, uh, you know, the other fine arts uh, produced. They're going to want to see real human performers. Uh, that will remain. People are fundamentally gregarious and like the human connection. So AI won't uh, displace or replace that uh, anytime, anytime soon. Okay, but let me drill into that a little bit because right now, uh, as we're recording this, there's a demonstration happening in Ottawa, in Canada, and across Canada at the border with the United States where truckers are objecting to a range of issues, but you can boil them down to, in some respects, what they're, they're resentful uh, that their future is being circumscribed and dictated by other people. They blame it on government, they blame it on regulation, but in some respects, they're also reacting to displacement by technology and artificial intelligence. Uh, anyone who's currently working as a truck driver in North America knows that they don't have a very long future because already robot trucking is available. It's being tested on roads in the United States right now and it's just a few years away uh, from becoming reality. And that's a big deal because uh, what people may not know is that truck drivers are uh, one of the largest uh, independent jobs that's available in the United States. Where will all those displaced truckers go? 
they're not going to become comedians. They're not going to be entertainers. I don't think they want to become people who are in the creative industry. How do you respond to that, Richard? I'm very sympathetic to their plight. As a much younger man, uh, I uh, operated heavy machinery for a living for a time. So, you know, I, I understand how, how that feels and how that works. Um, but, but being sympathetic to their plight won't, won't change the outcome uh, for them. The, the outcome is going to be that automation is going to happen. Logistics and supply chains are going to innovate and change. Trucking is going to change. And they're, they're either going to have to be, be retrained to do something else, not, not to be comedians necessarily, but to work in other meaningful jobs that they hopefully enjoy and get fulfillment from. Uh, or, or they're going to have to change, you know, change mindset, change industry altogether. It's going to, it's going to come down to the, the change is happening. You can either accept it and try and adapt uh, and prepare for the future. And that, that also is an age variable, right? So if one's close to retirement, there's less of an imperative. If one's in their 30s and they're operating heavy machinery for a living, then that's, that's a greater imperative, I would suggest. It's figure out what else you might like to do and what is derivative of, of what you're doing now, perhaps, and then tool up and skill up there. And it's incumbent on government and companies and industries to help do that because, look, as a 20-year-old guy operating heavy machinery, I had no idea about much of what was happening in the rest of the world. And I would have needed somebody to tell me that that was a limited path and that, here, we're going to help you out. We've got some training programs, some ideas, and we're going to sponsor you through that so you don't end up. Uh, unemployed or, or redundant uh, to society in some ways in 10 years, 20 years' time. That is something that's absolutely essential. That should be the focus. It's not the focus now for many governments, many policymakers, uh, and some for some companies. Because if you look at it as a company and the shareholder uh, value return, uh, automation and AI helps. Uh, so, you know, where does that leave the employees? Well, that's a secondary question for some, and it can't be and it shouldn't be. Right. Uh, you know, one of the things you'll notice in the U.S. is that truckers are actually voting with their feet. We have a crisis here right now, which is that there aren't enough truckers, truck drivers in the United States. Um, and that's partly because for the last 10 years, we've been hearing about robot vehicles. And so young people who hear that say, well, that's a lousy career path. I'm going to choose a different career path. So to some extent, yeah. individuals are already making informed decisions. And to give those drivers their due, uh, I think they may be more informed than we sometimes give them credit for. Um in the closing moments here, I want you to talk a little bit about the bigger vision, optimal humanity, where all this is driving to, all this economic activity, all this technological change, all the prescriptions that you offer. Share with me your vision of optimal humanity. So this is why I, I think the rise of technosocialism as a book tends to be more a philosophical project rather than, you know, like an e economics or, or policy one in many respects, is, um, you know, if we extend this out hundreds of years, you know, what do we want from humanity? What's the purpose of, of us being here? Aristotle, who we quote in the book, said it's for humanity to thrive. And I think the argument we make in the book is that um, we are entering a period of time where humanity will, will not have any limitations in terms of what we can do, um, you know, technologically or scientifically, but that requires us optimally to work together, that for the species, for the planet, for the other species that we share on, you know, the earth with, um, and, and for future generations, um, there is no downside to humanity working more collaboratively together to produce outcomes that are in the best interests of all humans. Whenever we 
create division. Wherever we have economic classes that separate, that you know, produce different outcomes, that's always going to be suboptimal for the human species and for the planet because you're going to have people game that. So ultimately, that's the philosophical question that we sort of left readers with in the book is, um, you know, the techno-socialism is a path for that type of collectivism um, where humanity can work together for better outcomes. And if if you choose, if you say, no, I want my tribe to be the one that gets all the benefits, ultimately at some point that's going to result in someone else having suboptimal, um, you know, uh, outcomes. So we believe that artificial intelligence and climate will force us into that sort of renaissance of thinking uh, as a human species that optimally humanity is best served by working together. And our fear is that if, if that um, epiphany doesn't happen, that, um, you know, the, the very species is at risk. Wow. A bold vision and kind of a stirring call to action, a stirring call to arms as well. Uh, folks, this is, uh, this is The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik, and I've been talking to my co-host, Brett King, who is the co-author with our other guest today, Dr. Richard Petty, of the book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. It's a stirring read. It's, in my opinion, it's one of Brett's best books. It's really well informed with data. It's rich with factual information. So, for each uh, each assertion that's made in the book, and for each policy prescription that's recommended in the book, you'll find a, a raft of data to support it. So, if you're interested in a fun read with a bright vision of the future, but a realistic take on the challenges that we face as humanity. I really recommend the rise of techno-socialism. Um, in future episodes, we're going to bring other futurists, other people who are future-minded to come in and share their methodologies with us. But today, I want to thank Brett and Dr. Richard Petty for sharing their thoughts about the rise of techno-socialism. Thank you both very, very much for joining us. You're welcome. That's it for the Futurist this week. If you like the show... Sure you did. Please subscribe and share it with those in your community. And please don't forget to leave us a five-star review. It always helps other people find the podcast. You can also ping us on Twitter and Instagram on at Futurist Podcast for futurists you'd like to see on the show or topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks for joining, and we will see you in the future.